And, you know, 30 plus years ago, Canadians were, were so polite, they didn't know what to do with the four, you know, everybody sitting in their car going, you go, you go. <laughs> I've come back to Vancouver and the nations are here. So as far as I can tell, it's never my turn at a four-way stop. So I, I still don't like it. But, but that's what many people without your um, background of slipping in and out of this religious coma, that, that's what they think of when they, when they see a cross. And, and there's others who think of a cross, it's just like a, you know, a fashion accessory. If I wear this, I'll be like Lady Gaga. Suddenly I can just go by a name I make up. I, I, I just look cooler with this hanging around my neck or this on my clothes, my purse. For many people, they think of the, the cross and it's a symbol of cool. We served for many years in Southeast Asia and on the island of Labuan, there is a cemetery that's full of hundreds of graves, row after row after row, and every grave has a cross. It's a graveyard of allied soldiers who died while liberating Borneo from the reign of the Japanese. It was a moving experience for me to go there and realize, you know, grow up in Canada, uh, I'm a third generation immigrant, we really have not known much difficulty. I mean, we have suffering, but it's self-inflicted, right? I, I have my own issues that, that I have to create, but for the first time, I, I realized my dad experienced this. Friends dying to liberate Europe. And as I stood in that huge graveyard, row after row after row of crosses, I suddenly noticed that the cemetery is surrounded by a six-foot-high brick wall because Borneo is Muslim, and it offends the eyes of a Muslim even to see a cross because when they see a cross, it's powerfully symbolic of the Crusades, which in their mind just happened yesterday. This brutal war, not for the souls of men and women, but for property over who would rule in Jerusalem, who would rule in Constantinople. That is powerfully symbolic. And so many people now living in Canada, when they see the cross, they are in the process of perishing. And so for them, it's just crazy. No, it it doesn't mean that much to them, or it is even a great offense. Cicero was a great Roman orator, and he was a man who knew about the offense of the cross. He said this about the cross, how grievous a thing it is to be disgraced by a public court, how grievous to suffer a fine, how grievous to suffer banishment. Yet in the face of any such disaster, we at least retain some degree of liberty, for even if we die, we die as free men. But the very word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, from his eyes, from his ears for the occurrence of this thing. The very mention of it is unworthy of a Roman citizen and a free man. Do you get this? That Cicero knew 
that the cross was not meant for crucifixion. It was meant for humiliation and terror. Only foreigners could be crucified, and they hung there as a warning to an occupied people. You better stand in line, or this will happen to you. Shamed, naked, slowly dying on a cross, so slow that your relatives will bring food and water to you on a stick. Only in Palestine did they only hang for six days because the rest of the Roman world, they struggled to hold themselves up on that cross. It is a powerful symbol of humiliation and slow death to those who are foreigners and aliens. But here's the second part of verse 18. But to those of us who are being saved, that cross is the power of God. Because dead men cannot hear the power of God. Dead men cannot see the power, cannot know the power. For them it's just foolish affection. For them it's just a colossal miscalculation. It's a horrific humiliation. But for those of us, who are in the process of being made alive, it is the power of God. And so back to those cavemen. You hate Good Friday because the Lord was hanged on that day. Curly, the philosopher, says, but if you were going to be hanged on that day and he volunteered to take your place, how would that make you feel good? The power of the cross, secondly, Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Here, let me remind you the words of the Apostle Paul, inspired in prison of the Lord to write. He says, you were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature. It had not yet been cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all your sins. He canceled the record of charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. And here's what I've discovered about the evangelical tradition, our our tradition. I just have to look back at the choir to make sure you're still with me. Um, We we love, you know, to celebrate Easter Sunday, right? In fact, several of my Facebook friends who are also pastors, are posting on this day, calling it Easter Friday. We, we love to celebrate Easter. We, we love all the good things about Easter. Have you noticed, though, the rest of Canada is not celebrating with you, right? This is a holiday in Canada because normal people, when the symbol of the cross is moronic, they don't mind celebrating the dead Jesus, but for us it's a little awkward. Right? We, we prefer to look forward to, to Sunday. That's where the joy bursts out of us, right? We, we don't know what to do with Passion Friday, so we kind of cover the shame of the cross. We, we shift the blame, and so we seldom see the power of the cross just because we want to skip suffering to get straight to joy. But, but here's the Apostle Paul. Why is it so critical? He says, because... At the cross, we saw that great battle against rulers, against authorities, against 
powers in this dark world against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That was being fought on that first dark day. These forces that waged war against all of creation, that waged war against our very souls, these forces that conspire against God's redemptive plan, it was these forces defeated on that day by Christ's act of obedience. Many biblical scholars believe that that term Good Friday is actually a corruption of the original God's Friday. Not that it was particularly Good Friday, but it was God's Friday because in the middle of that one horrible human Friday, God showed up and snatched it back and owned that Friday as his own. And when he snatched back that Friday, when it became not humiliation Friday or my sad Friday, but thank God it's his Friday and rulers suddenly didn't rule and authorities had no power and and the powers had no authority. That's what happened in verse 15 of Colossians chapter 2 when Christ disarmed the spiritual powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That means you're not fighting anymore. The battle's been won. Stop talking about this big battle between good and evil. The battle's over. The victory was won on that day. Christ overpowered the powers. He overruled the rulers And he hung there in victory when God took his Friday back. You know that first um, Good Friday that we will celebrate in a moment? Jesus and his followers were not actually celebrating Good Friday. I'm assuming you know that. They were celebrating an ancient Hebrew high holy day called the Passover. In Exodus chapter 12, the Lord was getting ready to unleash his final plague upon the Egyptian king. And he says in verse 5, take a perfect lamb without flaw. In verses 6 and 7, he says, smear the blood on the doorposts of your home. And verse 13, he says, the blood, the blood will be a sign. When I see that blood, I will pass over. You think it's just an angel you're messing with. You see, God is good. He's not safe, though. When I see the blood, I will pass over, and you will live. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the beginning of verse 7, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, And Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. That perfect lamb, without flaw, Blood was a sign, wrath was satisfied, debt was paid, and so death passes over. You know, on that day when Jesus suffered a punishment, no citizen, no free man would ever have suffered, just like both of the criminals who hung side by side, don't let classical paintings think that Jesus make you think Jesus is the only one who had a sign above his head because in those days to remind the public 
this was what would happen to you. The name of the criminal would be placed there. His home address. And then the list of charges would be listed. And so above Jesus, it said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. But Paul says when God acted to snatch back that Friday and place all powers and all authorities under his submission. You know, he could have allowed Jesus to die in his sleep. Doesn't that make you wonder how it is that Gautama Buddha taught for over 60 years, then at the age of 84, laid down in his bed and died? Doesn't it ever make you wonder how the Prophet Muhammad could teach and wage war for 40 years and then in his 70s lay down and die peacefully? And that Jesus, half that age, less than half that age, at 33 was gone? Not just dead in his sleep, but beaten and pierced, mocked, because Scripture said he wasn't just paying the price for my sin. He was paying the price for thousands of years of this great bowl of God's wrath that simmered because we knew nothing but sin. We sin automatically. It's in our nature. The crosses of humanity thirst for my blood. A sign prepared. Ian of Vancouver. King of his castle. That dirty rascal. You see, that's what our rebellion is. We want to be the boss. We don't want to bow the knee. And that whole big bowl of simmering wrath The picture of God's wrath is seen at Calvary when Christ not just paid for my sin, but became my sin. If you want to see a picture of God's wrath, don't go to earthquakes. Go to Calvary. You want to see a picture of God's anger? Don't go to warfare and pestilence and famine. Go to Calvary. Because there is the wrath of Christ of God poured down on His own Son, that perfect Lamb of God. Third, the Apostle Paul writes of the supremacy of the cross. I sometimes feel this is um, our 33rd year of full-time ministry. I would like you to think that means we started at about 10 but sometimes I, I honestly feel like we're doing almost everything wrong. Uh, you notice that Jesus, he didn't gather a life group together and teach them information and have them, you know, memorize this. I'm going to say something you should remember. Let's repeat after me. He didn't rent a building and start church. You know, plant, planting churches is, is huge right now, right? Everybody's planting churches. Jesus didn't start a church. He, he just poured himself into 12 guys. And, and, and then he took our place and their place. 
And that's why I believe in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul writes a church that is really impressed with the spiritual gifts of those who serve. They, they, they want guys to preach you a platform presence. They, they want a great band. You know, that's a Corinthian church. It's a charismatic New Testament model. They, they like it to, to be happening. And the Apostle Paul reminds them in the first or second chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter, or in the first two verses, he said, when I came to you, I didn't come to you with great eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony of God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You see, church, I think that's our problem. We have determined to know too much. And we are the most educated generation of believers in the history of the world. And in all the global religions, we, we have some consistent, familiar ways to come to God. And, and sometimes that creates a discussion. Well, which religion is, is more noble? Which religion has the highest moral code? Which, which religion has the holiest regulations or, or the greatest spiritual ambitions? And all of this is an irrelevant question. Because I suspect if the Apostle Paul was here today, he would not care. In fact, I'm pretty sure he would not want to get involved in an argument about whether we should have contemporary music or the ancient songs. I'm pretty sure he won't care about what model of church you do, like purpose-driven church or silent tsunami or house church, cell church. I'm pretty sure the Apostle Paul would not care. Uh, could it be, bride of Christ, that we struggle to regain a foothold in this amazing city because we're so focused on stuff that doesn't matter? I mean, could it be? Could it be that if it doesn't matter, then it's no point doing that with greater excellence? Could it be that if it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter if you do it with more charisma or more updated music? Could it possibly be that if something doesn't matter, it just doesn't matter? And and pastors, I'm just going to say to you, if the Apostle Paul said, I focus on nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I just want to say, if we're preaching sermons that never get to the cross, we've said a lot of stuff, but we haven't got to the gospel. If we don't get to the cross, we do not get to the good of this news. In the words of that great Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon, nothing puts life into a man like a dying Savior. I pray that we will be like that apostle. Say, you know, I I could tell you about new trends, new technology, but I've got to be honest with you, I know nothing except Jesus and Him crucified. That's all I know. When people come to your office for counseling, maybe their family is struggling, I hope you will say, I'm not a family counselor. I don't know anything about new cool ways to relate to one another like Venus and Mars. I just know Jesus 
and him crucified, and I believe he would make a radical difference if he was at the center of your marriage. Finally, the sufficiency of the cross. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 18 says this, When I think of this, when I think of what? You know, when I think of this, Ephesians chapter 2, we were aliens. What do aliens do? They get crucified. We were rebels when we were dead in our sin. But the Apostle Paul says, so great was he in his mercy that when we were dead, he made us alive. And so, verse 14, I fall on my knees and I pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth, I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources that he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit that Christ will make his home in your hearts as you learn to trust him that your roots will grow deep down into his love and keep you strong and that you may know and have the power to understand as all of God's church should how wide How long, how high, and how deep is the love of Christ? Friends, without Friday, there just can't be any Sunday. Without the despair of Friday night, there'd be no hope for Sunday morning. Without the humiliation of the occupied cross, there would be no exhilaration of the unoccupied tomb. It goes through the cross. That's why this day is both good and God's. Because he seized it and overpowered the powers and authorities that would see you and me on that cross. In the first century, England was enjoying the rule of the party king, partay king, King Charles I. King Charles, as far as I can tell, was a fairly good ruler, but he loved his mead. Must have been Scottish, I can say that. Uh, He drank a lot. He drank until he forgot people were impoverished in his land. He drank and partied, and that's what he was known for. He turned the palace into party central. And then a man rose to power who came from an evangelical religious tradition. His name was Oliver Cromwell. And many, if you grew up in Canada, you you learn about British history because we're a colony after all. And, And so I learned all about Lord Protector of England and how he established the Puritan reign and and banned the drinking of alcohol. He could have been Southern Baptist. I can say that because that's my tribe. You know, you you can't drink, otherwise you're going to hell. You you can't smile. He established England from party central to the no-fun place, which feels a lot like the church I grew up in. um, No no happiness. The Puritan law was established, and, and churches placed mourning benches, which I notice all of our pastors right now are are sitting there grieving over their sin. That's what was celebrated in in England. And he established a 7 o'clock in the evening curfew. 
All across the United Kingdom, a great curfew bell was rung in every town and village. And at that point, every man had to be home with his family, not out in the pubs drinking. And you probably remember, he also executed Charles I as a traitor to good faith and holiness in the land. The story is told of a young British soldier being arrested for the crime of stealing two loaves of bread. The law was severe. It had to be to change culture. And the punishment for stealing two loaves of bread was to be shot, executed at the evening curfew. And whenever the bells rung across the UK, it was a reminder to all of those who were tempted to go out and party. People are dying this day because of crimes that they are committed against the Holy Church of England. This young man was bound and blindfolded and as seven o'clock drew near, the, the soldiers' firing squad stood ready, gunpowder rammed into their muskets. They, they raised their muskets to end this young man's life. Seven o'clock came, and then it went. The bell didn't ring. Didn't ring five minutes after. Didn't ring 15 minutes. 30 minutes later, the soldiers were putting down their muskets. Those bad boys were heavy, right? They put them down. They were afraid to shoot because they, they dreamed it must be some intervention of God and Lord Protector Oliver Cromwell immediately launched an investigation. Within the hour, a young girl was thrown at his feet. Her hands, broken and bruised and bleeding, thrust out as evidence of her crime. And while she sat at his feet weeping, the story was told of how she climbed the ladder to that great belfry. And she waited and waited. And as seven o'clock drew near, she clutched the great clapper of that bell. And as men tugged and pulled on that rope, she was thrown, tossed back and forth, back and forth, her tiny, petite hands muffling any ring, any sound that would come from that bell. The story was told and Lord Protector Oliver Cromwell sat silent for a long time. Eyes fixated on those little hands. And when he spoke, his voice was quivering with emotion. And he said this, Because of your sacrifice, your lover shall live. No more in England will the curfew bell ring. You see, that is that sacrificial, selfless God's Friday kind of love that generates in that act of selfless sacrifice such extraordinary power. It exceeds even 
the power and authority of the law. And I know this. I know this because in my own life, when I sinned, not once, but many times, when the crosses of eternity thirsted for my blood, the hands of Jesus Christ, broken and bloodied, were thrust out as evidence of how wide and how long and how deep is the love of Christ. Do you sense this kind of power in your life? No, no matter where you've come from, no matter what you've done, no matter how the authorities and the powers want to remind you of how imperfect and broken you are, do you know this kind of self-sacrificial love experienced in the embrace of God's Friday? When we were weak in our broken humanity, the cross was the power of God. When we felt like aliens and foreigners, insignificant in this city, the cross was supreme. And when all of our efforts to make ourselves better in religious self-help groups failed, that cross was sufficient. Father God, we join our hearts this morning with the prayer of the Apostle Paul. Because when we think of all this, we too want to fall on our knees and cry out to you, for you are the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. And so we pray now that from your glorious unlimited treasure, will you not empower us with inner strength, crucifixion strength through your Spirit. Let Christ make his home in our hearts and fill our emptiness with joy and peace and life as we learn to trust him, as we push our roots down deep in his love. Will you not keep this, your people, strong? And may all of us, because this is your Friday, May all of us have the power to know how wide and how long and how high and how deep is your love for us. We plead this in the name of Jesus. Amen. But this we, are, we cannot understand what kind of amazing love is. Yes. So... Please help us. Let our hearts be touched by your Holy Spirit. Let us understand more and deeply your love and your hatefulness of our sins. Mm -hmm. Oh, Lord, help us. Let us repent our sins. Let us regain our faith to you and rededicate us as a living sacrifice as holy and pleasing to you. We thank you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.